Numbers chapter 23, we're trying to finish up uh, three chapters total, and we started last Wednesday in chapter 22 of Numbers with a message titled, Don't Discredit the Donkey, Don't Discredit the Donkey. And uh, you'll remember in that message, um, we were discussing Balaam the wicked prophet who knew God, but he was more concerned about the wages of wickedness than the rewards of righteousness. And often people can be that way. And uh, through it, we are learning that God has, has set aside a certain group of people in this world, the nation of Israel. And he is keeping them, protecting them, and he has a plan for them. And the church has not replaced Israel. There's some people that will try to preach a replacement theology, assuming that the church has replaced the Old Testament um, nation of Israel, and that's not the case. You have to rightly divide your word to understand what God's doing. And in the Old Testament, God had made great promises to the nation of Israel, and it began with a man by the name of Abram at the time out of Genesis chapter 12. And then he had promised in Genesis chapter 12 to bless Abraham, his seed, with not only him with a seed, but also him with a great uh, land, which we know that's the promised land, the land of Israel, as well as a nation. And those are things that God has fulfilled because he was the one who was going to honor the promise. And as we move into Numbers, this is many years after Abraham. He's already died. We're now in the days of Moses. And Moses had been the leader to deliver the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And they're wandering through the wilderness for 40 years because of their unbelief um, concerning God's promise to bring them into the promised land. But anyway, here in the midst of the book of Numbers, the nation of Israel had made it to uh, the Moabites. And they had already conquered a nation called the Amorites. And all these were, these were idol-worshiping nations. These were devilish people. I mean, they had evil, wicked, ungodly ways about them. And, the, and Israel was unique because it was God's people. And they were willing by faith, without any, anything really tangible in front of them just yet, they were willing by faith to just simply follow the instruction and the commands of God Almighty. And the Scriptures would tell us in the New Testament that without faith it's impossible to please God. And God's always been the same way. We see it in the Old Testament, the people followed God by faith. We see it in the New Testament, we follow God by faith. So God calls these people out, he's guiding them, he's protecting them, and um, as we come into chapter 23, we're going to see another part to our event here. Let me give you a little bit of a recap about 22 in case you weren't with us last week. In chapter 22, we, we meet a man named Balaam. Again, as I said, he was a wicked prophet of God. I don't like to call Balaam a false prophet because Balaam did call on Jehovah Elohim. That is the one true living God. And he called him by name. He was not connected to the Jewish people. He was of Mesopotamia, but he still knew the one true God. And that's not unusual because Abraham had even ran into a man named Melchizedek in his day, and that man knew the one true God as well. So this man Balaam knows the one true God, but he was taking... He was taking bribes and wages from these wicked nations with, the, with basically the, the idea in mind 
that he would kind of exploit the power of God. The sad thing is he was never able to do that. And in this case, the king of the Moabites, a man by the name of Balak, called the prophet Balaam to Moab to curse the children of Israel, but God would not allow it because these are God's chosen people as they are today and as they were then. Balaam has a hard time trying to get to Balak. God threatens Balaam's life and allows a donkey, a donkey of all things, to rebuke him audibly. The donkey speaks to him and rebukes him for what he's doing. And I believe it's showcasing Balaam's apparent foolishness for going against the will of God. I mean, to go against the will of God is, is just one of those asinine things, those foolish things that people often do that we should never be guilty of because who are we to fight with God? You can't go against the will of God. And so God showcases that through this talking donkey here in chapter 22. Balaam arrives in Moab. The king treats him like royalty, promising honor and riches. And here's the thing, that's not unusual either. Balak is worshiping a false god. Balak is energized by the devil. And here's what the devil will always do. He'll always offer you honor and riches if you'll simply follow him and do his bidding. When the Lord Jesus Christ was on earth and was beginning his earthly ministry after he was baptized by John. He goes into the wilderness after 40 days and 40 nights. He's weak, he's tired, he's hungry, and here comes Satan ready to tempt him. And Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, you can have them all if you'll just bow down and worship me. But Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver. And he's lied to so many people, and that's why today our churches are often empty because so many people have bought into the lie that this world somehow has something that can help us, and it doesn't have anything that can help us. The world is the problem. Because in it we have the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And all three of those have condemned mankind to an eternal hell separated from a holy and righteous God. But thank God for Jesus Christ, our Savior, and our Lord, who has come to deal with our sin and to secure us everlasting life and a place in heaven. As we come into chapter 23, chapter 23 begins with the first of four prophecies that Balaam will be giving from chapters 23 to 24. The first two prophecies cover the who and the what concerning God's people, and the conclusion of chapter 23 is very encouraging to any child of God, and I hope tonight the message will be a blessing and encouragement to you. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. Lord, this small crew here at the church, we know a lot of our church family sick tonight or out of town traveling. Lord, you know where each one is. I pray you'd comfort each one right now, Lord. Let your grace fall on them wherever they are. And Lord, I pray you'd let your grace fall on us tonight, Lord. We'd love to just feel your presence with us tonight. Would you please speak to our hearts? Help us, Lord, to be drawn closer to you. Lord, I ask that you'd fill me with your Holy Spirit and let me not say anything that I want to say, but let me say everything that you want me to say. And Father, I pray you touch hearts tonight and stir us up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, let's start with chapter 23, verse 1. It says, And Balaam said unto Balak, Build me here seven altars, and prepare me here seven oxen and seven rams. And Balaam did as, Balaam, I'm sorry, and Balak did as Balaam had spoken, and Balak and Balaam offered on every altar a bullock and a ram. And Balaam said unto Balak, Stand by the bur- thy burnt offering, and I will go, peradventure the Lord will come to meet me. And whatsoever 
He showeth me, I will tell thee. And he went to a high place. And God met Balaam, and he said unto him, I have prepared seven altars, and I have offered upon every altar a bullock and a ram. Now I want you to know in verse 4 that he is referring to Balaam, not God. Balaam would have said unto God, I have prepared seven altars, and I have offered upon every altar a bullock and a ram. And the Lord, verse 5, And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return unto Balak, and thus thou shalt speak. And he returned unto him, and lo, he stood by his burnt sacrifice, he and all the princes of Moab. Now I'm going to stop right there for a second. Balak is very good at religion. Did you notice that in the first part of this? Balak does not worship Jehovah Elohim. That's the one true living God. That's his proper name in the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews. Balak worships the God of Baal, and we see that in chapter 22, verse 41. Balak is willing, by because of religion, he's willing to go forward, and he's willing to prepare seven altars, and on those seven altars, Balak is willing to sacrifice seven oxen and seven rams, and even listen to Balaam who says, stand by the burnt offering, and Balak stands right there. The thing about Balak, is he is great at religion, as many are. Many people are very good at religion because religion is easy. That's why people like it so much. I believe in some of the other churches around or cults or whatever you want to call them, the other groups, the reason why they have so much religion in the building, practices and rituals, is because religion is easy. I could tell you to come up here and I could tell you to light a handful of candles in front of us and have a moment of silence. I could tell you to come up here and bow your knees and say so many things. That's easy. I could tell you to dress a certain way when you come to the church. And just as long as you dress a certain way, you're right with God. That's easy. See, religion is always easier than what Balak lacked, and that is submission. Balak was not willing to submit to the will of God. No matter what God's will was, Balak was not willing to submit to it. But Balak was willing to exhaust himself on religion. And one of the, the death blows of the modern day church, I believe, is religion. People with their trinkets, their trinkets and their, their habits that they formed and their rituals and their words and their, and their little ideas and their religion that they add to their relationship with Christ, that is a death blow to Christianity. And we find in Balak, this man is willing to do all these religious things, but not willing to submit. You want to know God? Submit your life to God. Sell all you have. Give it to the poor and follow Jesus Christ. That's how you know God. Balak here is nothing more than a religious man. Balak was willing to work these works to get what he wanted, but was uncomfortable being told no when God said no. What were his works? He said, I want to curse these people. I want the nation of Israel to be cursed and he wanted Jehovah Elohim to be the one to curse them through Balaam. That's what he wanted. But he wouldn't get what he wanted. God was going to tell him, no. God said, no, those are my people. I won't curse them. I'm only going to bless them. We're often willing to work hard for selfish desires, but how much are we willing to do for the sake of God's will alone? Now, you noodle on that for a second. We often want to work so hard for our own selfish desires. If it helps me, if it rewards me, if it adds to me, if it builds me. I mean, we're all about me, me, me. But how much of us are willing to just burn ourselves out simply for 
God's will and that's it. I just want God's will to be done. Do you know that was the character of Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ was only concerned about the will of the Father. And the whole time Jesus Christ walked the face of the earth, you know the only thing he ever did? The will of the Father. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when we get a picture of him praying to the Heavenly Father and saying, this is, this is not something I want to happen. Father, would you let this cup pass from me? What are his words? He says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He was concerned about the will of the Father. And Balak is not concerned about the will of the Father. This is where submission is so important for each one of us. Now, as we go into our text and we see some of these things show up in, in Balak and we see some of his character, and then we see Balaam gets this opportunity in verse 6 to speak to God. We come to verse 7. He comes back to Balak, the king of Moab. He brings this, uh, this word back. Look at verse 8, chapter 23, the book of Numbers, verse 8. It says, How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous. And let my last end be like his. In this first prophecy, we're going to answer the question, who are these people? And I believe that's what God is explaining to Balak through this prophecy and to the world for our benefit today. And he starts in verse 9 with this, these people are a separated people. In verse 9, for from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him, Lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. This group of people known as Israel are a separated people in this world. I am not of Israel. You are not of Israel unless you've got Jewish blood in, coursing through your veins. Ultimately, that people, that group of people is separate from all the Gentile nations that have ever existed on planet Earth. And God is pointing out that these people are unique, these people are different because they are separated. They are separated. We see back in Genesis chapter 12, go back there with me, that'll be to the left in your Bible. You'll see the promise that God had given to Abraham, and this is where the separation begins. Genesis chapter 12 Look with me at verse 1. This is when Abram is called out of the Ur of the Chaldees. And it says this in verse 1, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. What was happening in verse 1? God was separating Abram. He says, Get thee, look what he says here, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. Abram did not know where he was going. All he knew is God called him to go. God was separating Abram from the world. From all the other nations, God was separating Abram. Verse 2, and I will make of thee a great nation. There's a promise. And I will bless thee. There's a promise. 
and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. This is why it is important for us to support the nation of Israel still today as a nation. Because God has made a promise in His Word that He will bless those who bless His people. They are separated. They are different. They are unique. They are not of the Gentiles. They are Jews. They are of Israel. So they're a separated people. Now, here's the thing. God also has called all of His people to be separated. Now, if you will, go over to 2 Corinthians in your New Testament. There's a principle that was established in the Old Testament that God carried into the New. And this is why it is so important for us as born-again believers to recognize the principles that God established in the Old Testament and strive to live them out even though we are of the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, God says to His children today, those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are born again and on their way to heaven, he says in verse 17, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. God is different than the rest of this world. Mankind's problem is he has rebelled against the goodness and the holiness of God. The world does not desire godliness in their lives. The world is doing their own thing. They are doing what's right in their own eyes. So when a person is born again and added to the family of God, they have no place to walk in the world anymore unless they're in out, outright defiance or rebellion. Their place is to be close to God, separated from the lost and dying sinful world and living out their lives according to God's commandments and really according to the measure of holiness. These are things you'll find in the New Testament. And this is what Jesus often called everyone to. All right, let's go back to Numbers chapter 23 again. Okay, so first off, we see with these people, they are a separated people. We see God's principle carries over even into the New Testament for the born-again believer today that you are to be a separated people. We're not to look like the world, talk like the world, act like the world, do everything the world does. We're to be different. We're to be a light to this world. How can you be a light if you're constantly walking in darkness? You can't. Therefore, you have to choose whom you'll serve. You'll choose which side you'll be on. And you'll choose whether or not you'll be a light in this dark, dark world we live in. Look at verse 10 of Numbers 23. We're back there. So the second thing we see in verse 10 is that these people here are a, I put down a spreading people. I also thought a saturating people, but I thought spreading might make more sense. And if you look at verse 10, it says, Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? The idea was, in that, in that uh, prophecy that Balaam was giving, is he was echoing God's promise to bless the seed of Abraham. And if you'll remember, there was one time where God told Abraham to look up to the stars of heaven and see if he could count them. He said, that'll be your seed. Now look at the sand on the ground, see if you can count that. That'll be your seed. He was saying you are going to have an innumerable amount of, of people that will be connected to you that will come from your seed. And this people group is separated to God 
is also a people group that will be spreading all throughout the world. And we see that is true today because they sure, in fact, did do those things. Now, I want to take you over to Galatians 3, and I want to show you a New Testament truth that I hope will bring some understanding and clarity to this idea of the seed. Galatians chapter 3. Now, when you get Galatians chapter 3, I also want you to grab Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, we just looked at, but grab Genesis 12. We're doing a little Bible study here. All right, we're going to be flipping back and forth. Genesis 12 and Galatians 3. All right, so in Genesis chapter 12, you'll remember again, and I'm just going to read this one more time. The Lord says, I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee, curse them that curse thee. And, uh, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So there's a great blessing that's going to come on these people that are, are mentioned here in this verse, verse 3. I will bless them that bless thee, curse them that curse thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, over here in Galatians chapter 3, if you'll start with me in uh, verse 14. Let's start there. Verse 14. And actually, there's another passage I want to read to you that I just remembered. Here, let me see if I can find it before I read verse 14 to you. Oh, that's a good one. Okay. Uh, In Genesis, if you will, grab Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. You can let go of chapter 12. Go to Genesis chapter 22 and pick up with me in verse 17. Is anybody stressed yet? (laughs) Genesis 22, verse 17. Galatians 3, verse 14. All right, does everybody have their place? Let's start with Genesis 22. Verse 17, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall process or possess, I'm sorry, possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. Now you see in Genesis 22, God is reminding Abraham that he is going to bless his seed. But then look at Galatians 3, verse 14. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannul it or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed, doesn't that sound familiar? Were the promises made? We saw that in Genesis 22, 17, and 18. Keep reading in verse 16. He saith not, and to seeds, as in plural, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, after Abraham that is, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, 
it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed, that is Christ, should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin. That's all the world, every, every man and woman. All under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by what? Faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, that's the law, for ye are all the children of God by what? Faith in who? Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We come, we're connected to the promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, in Genesis chapter 22, when God said, I will bless your seed, he was referring to Christ, and by faith, we are added into that inheritance and to the family. And so when God says to Abraham, your, your seed will be so vast, it'll be like the stars of the sky. You won't be able to count it. The sand of the, of the shore, you won't be able to count it. He was referring to all, not just the nation of Israel, but as that one main seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes into the world, it's all those who come by way of faith into the family of God, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are a part of that seed. And it is vast. And it is innumerable. And it spreads across the face of the earth. Now back to Numbers chapter 23. Such a wonderful thought there about Abraham's seed and Christ's seed, how those connect. These are a spreading people is what God said through Balaam. He said that you will not be able to count them. The, uh, who can count the dust of Jacob in the number of the fourth part of Israel? Then it says in verse 10, Numbers 23, Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. Two more things here to conclude for this first prophecy concerning who are these people. They are a separated people. They are a spreading people. But the third thing is they are a sanctified people. Look at the first part of verse 10. It says, um, well, really not the, I'm sorry, not the first part, but the second half of verse 10. It says, let me die the death of the righteous, of the righteous. Here, the prophet Balaam is given liberty by God to declare that these people who are God's people are a righteous people. And they are righteous not because of their own righteous works, but because God has declared them righteous. And these are a special people in the eyes of God. It's not by their works that they're righteous. You know why they're righteous? Because of their faith in God. Hold your place in Numbers and go to Isaiah chapter 1. That'll be to the right in your Old Testament. 
Go past Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and you'll run right into Isaiah. And look at chapter 1 with me. All right. Isaiah chapter 1. If you will, pick up in verse 10. Look, this is God's rebuke towards the nation of Israel when they fell into sin. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. That's not a good thing. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. He was rebuking his people for their wickedness, almost comparing them to Sodom and Gomorrah, which was uh, cities of abominations, I mean, the, the sins that they had committed. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? See, they were still going through the religion. They were still making the sacrifices. Saith the Lord, I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. It's almost like he was saying, I'm sick of it. You ever been so full you almost felt sick? If I ever go to Golden Corral, that's how I leave usually. I'm sick. I'm so full. I can't do buffets because I feel like if I'm going to pay that price, I'm getting my money's worth one way or another. All right, even if I'm letting it, you know, letting it go later on in the bathroom or something. But he was saying, I'm sick, I'm full of these offerings. He says, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks and or lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? He says, bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me the new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear you. For your hands are full of blood. He was saying, look at all the sins. Look what he says in verse 16, though. He says, wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet. They shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The difference was not the religion, the difference was their faith. When they had faith properly placed in the Almighty, they would live out their lives according to that faith. They would say, by faith he's holy, by faith he's righteous, by faith he has commanded me and therefore I will do, by faith he promises and therefore I will be faithful. See, faith is what is missing often in our walk with God. And in the case of the nation of Israel, God rebuked them here despite all their rituals and all their religion and all their efforts because they lacked faith and they were no longer living out their lives according to God's word and they weren't being right with him. So back in Numbers chapter 23, when Balaam is given liberty here to give this prophecy about it saying, let me die the death of the righteous, 
It was almost as if he was saying these people in the eyes of God, they are righteous. But they're only righteous because God hath declared them righteous. Do you know why we're righteous today? Not because of our good works, because even our most righteous works are nothing but filthy rags in the eyes of God. We're only righteous because of Christ. We're only righteous when we walk by faith and not by sight. That's the only way that we're ever righteous in the eyes of God. And if you ever wonder about the favor of God on your life and it coming and going, just keep in mind that when you're living according to the flesh and you're walking according to sight, you're coming short of what God has commanded of His children. He says, walk by faith. Live according to faith. The just shall live by faith. And that's what He wants out of us. There are sanctified people. Sanctified unto God, they're declared righteous. We should be sanctified every day to being declared righteous. But then also, I believe there are celebrated people, as at the end of verse 10, it says, and this is Numbers 23, and let my last end be like his. That tells us that somebody, somebody is envious of the final end of these people. And I believe it'll be all the Gentile nations of the world who have not come into the family of God through that seed. They're looking and look, it says, and let my last end be like his. I want to be like him. You ever want to be like somebody before? In the case of the nation of Israel, they have God's favor upon them. God's made promises to them. Did you know during the millennial reign of Christ, the nation of Israel will be there? Many of those Jews will be there. And it's because God will be faithful to his people who have kept their faith in him. And he will honor his blessing and honor his word and and they will be brought into that millennial reign. Not all of them because many of them are unregenerate and many of them will die in their sins. But many of them will come into the millennial reign of Christ because of their faith in God. And where will Jesus rule and reign during the millennial reign? In Jerusalem, which is the nation of Israel. So the idea is that there's many who will celebrate, they will want, they will envy after, they will covet after the end of the the, uh, nation of Israel, their final end. And the same would be true for Christians as well. The lost and dying world will want to be as we are. They will rule and reign in the millennial reign of Christ. They have an extraordinary inheritance that awaits them. And if you will, hold your place in Numbers 23 and turn with me over to Hebrews 11, and I'll show you how in the New Testament this truth is confirmed that they were looking for a better end. They weren't just looking for a promised land. They were looking for something else. And it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Now watch this in verse 10. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, it's fixed, it's permanent, short, secure, whose builder and maker is God. He was looking for the ultimate end, not just for Canaan, not just for the promised land, but he was looking out even farther than that, looking for that ultimate city that God is going to provide for his people. 
And if you continue to read through your Bible, you go into the book of Revelation, you'll see there's a new Jerusalem that will uh, sometime in the future descend down from heaven, and it'll be placed on the new heaven and the new earth. And there's that city, not made with the hands of men, but built by God who is that maker. So that's a part of it as well. Now back in Numbers chapter 23, let's keep rolling along here. The second half of this I'm, I'm hoping will move a little quicker here. So Balak quickly protests Balaam's prophecy, as we'll read here in a minute. He had no interest in God's will, only his own. And Balak takes Balaam to another location, hoping he will see them in a less favorable light. And so if you will pick up with me in verse 11. And Balak said unto Balaam, What hast thou done unto me? I took thee to curse mine enemies, and behold, thou hast blessed them altogether. And he answered and said, Must I not take heed to speak that which the Lord hath put in my mouth? And Balak said unto him, Come, I pray thee, with me unto another place, from whence thou mayest see them. Thou shalt see but the utmost part of them, and shalt not see them all, and curse me them from thence. So here, Balak is moving Balaam to another location, hoping that from this other location, Balaam might look out over this group of people and see them in a, in a less favorable light. So the idea is that Balak, still believes that Balaam has the power to bless or curse. But Balaam doesn't have any power to do that because God has put his seal of protection on these people. And he has said, they will be blessed because I have declared it. And he's the sovereign God. And they will not be cursed because I have declared it. He's the sovereign God. Now, in the same way in the world we live in, did you know those who are in the family of God are blessed of God? But those who are not in the family of God, are cursed of God. And it is because God Almighty is the sovereign ruler. Balaam used his name, Jehovah Elohim. Jehovah is that name that reminds us that God is self-existing. I don't make God. You don't make God. We don't create God. God exists. Before anything exists, there was God. He's eternal. Elohim reminds us of the creative power of God. That was the first name used of God in Genesis chapter 1. Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created the heaven and the earth. In your English translation, it does use the English word God, but in the Hebrew, it's the name Elohim. So in the second part, we'll be taking a look at verse uh, 21 to begin with. And this is another prophecy here that comes up, and um, I need to read the rest of these passages for you so you'll get the full context. But the prophecy will begin in verse 21. Look at verse 14. And he brought him into the field of Zophim to the top of Pisgah built, and built seven altars and offered a bullock and a ram on every altar. And he said unto Balak, Stand here by the burnt offering while I meet the Lord yonder. And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Go again unto Balak and say thus. Now I want to point out again, did you notice Balak's religion? All over again, he's ready. Sacrifice seven lambs, or I'm sorry, seven bullocks and seven rams. He's willing to do the exact same thing the religion over and over and over, but he does not want to submit to the will of God. We go into the next passage here. Verse 17, And when he came to him, behold, he stood by his burnt offering, and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said unto him, What hath the Lord spoken? And he took up his parable and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear, hearken unto me, thou son of Zippor. God is not a man, as so many believe he is, that he should lie, neither the son of man, that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? 
Now here at the very beginning of this, God tells the son of Zippor to listen very closely to this. God is not a man. And Balak apparently assumed God was a man because he thought that Balaam could somehow twist the arm of God to curse a people that he said, I'll never curse them. They're blessed by me. And God says here, I am not a man. I will not lie. I've declared it. It will happen. He says, also, he does not repent. Now, the word repent, you have to know in the Hebrew, there's a certain stem that is used on this one that, re- that tells us that it's referring to God changing his mind about what he has declared. God's commandment is to bless the children of Israel because of what they are. Not just who they are, but even what they are. What are they? Well, verse 21 tells us. Keep reading with me, if you will. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among, among them. First off, they are positionally with God. You ever heard that saying where somebody would say, one plus God is always the majority? One plus God is the majority. You say, what about against an army of a million? One plus God is still the majority. You say, what about against an army of five million? One plus God is still the majority. You follow me? They are positionally with God. It doesn't matter how great, how grandiose, how large, how magnificent the nations of the world are because Israel is positionally with God. That's what he's saying right here in verse 21. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, Neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. He's saying positionally they are with me because of their faith. They are favored by me. And notice how it says here that he, it says the word beheld. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. Now all these words are very significant. You notice how he uses two names, Jacob and Israel. Well, who's Jacob and who's Israel? It's one and the same person. Jacob was the son of Isaac, who later had his name changed to Israel. So what is he referring to? Well, first off, notice what he says. He says, he hath not beheld the iniquity in Jacob. Was there iniquity there? Yes. But God has chosen not to behold it. The word beheld means that he is not going to pay attention to it. He is not going to regard it. The same is true for us. I guarantee you, if we were to examine all of our lives just in this one day here, and we're not even finished with it yet, every single one of us are guilty of sinning at some point today. Would you agree with me? But did you know God has not struck us down dead where we are? Even though we've already received the sacrifice of His Son? Why not? Because He has chosen not to regard our iniquities. He has chosen not to behold our iniquities. Why has he chosen such a thing? Because we are kept and and protected by the precious blood of the Son of God. You see? So the idea is they are positionally with God. Now, they didn't always practice that. We just read in Isaiah chapter 1, they came up short. God rebuked them. And here's the thing we see. This is the track record of Israel. When they were faithful to God and in His will, God blessed them. When they were unfaithful to God and out of His will, God chastened them. Why did he chasten them? Because he loved them. That was his people. Why does he chasten us as believers, as Christians? Because he loves us. 
If He doesn't chasten you, then you're not His. The Bible says it even in a more intense way, you're bastards and not sons is what it says. God chastens those He loves. And I'll tell you this much, if you've ever gotten out of the will of God and you found yourself sinning, and you experience some chastening in your life, you ought to fall on your knees and praise God for it. That we have a God in heaven that is so gracious and so filled with love that He would take time in His busy schedule to chasten me just enough to put me on the right path again. He's a faithful Father. And for the nation of Israel, He said, I do not behold their iniquity. I do not behold their perverseness. And it reminds us that they are positionally with him. Now, I did mention the names. I believe the names are important. Jacob is uh, defined as supplanter or heel grabber. He was always trying to find his way, you know, always trying to work his way up the ladder. But he was a struggle. He's grabbing the heel and, and, and these other things as the name defines. But Israel is defined as this. God prevails. And I think as God uses these two names, and if you'll read this chapter, you'll see God doesn't do it just once, but He does it about three or four times in the prophecy. I believe He's reminding us of of what Israel was before and then what Israel is now. Israel means God prevails. And therefore, God prevailed amongst these people to deliver them out from bondage in Egypt and to secure them a place in that promised land. God has worked a work. And you know, we were the same way before you were saved. You were the old you. After you're saved, you're the new you. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, therefore, I just lost it just like that. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And if you'll look back at the text one more time in verse 21, It says there at the latter part, the Lord his God is with him. There's that name again, Jehovah, and then Elohim is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God is with his people who are positionally with him. In verse 22, we see a second part to the second prophecy, which is this, God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. Now, that's a funny word we don't usually read in the Bible, but hopefully I can give some, shed some light on it here in a second. Uh, the second part is that they are protected by God. Not only are they positionally with God, but they are protected by God. God brought them out of Egypt in slavery. They were bound to the customs of the Egyptians and the pagan worship in that area at the time. They had no law for guidance. They had no instruction. Everything came at Mount Sinai after they were delivered out of Egypt. So they were bound to that, but God delivered them from their idolatry. And then he says there at the end of that verse, he hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking fairy dust. You're thinking thinking, uh, rainbow colors on the mane. You know, you're thinking unicorn like that. Well, that whole folklore imagery and all that, that came much later than the original writings here in the Hebrew. Honestly, the English translators had no clue what they referred to because we don't have a word that closely aligns with this Hebrew word. So the belief is it was some single-horned creature. That's all they know. That's why they use the word unicorn. 
And there is a rhinoceros, and I know somebody would say, well, rhinoceros has one horn. Well, it doesn't. It has actually two. It has a little nub up top. But there was a rhinoceros that had fur on it that is extinct now that only had one horn. You can go look this up online. Uh, they have found fossils for this. And I forget the actual name right off the top of my head. But with it referring to the strength of this animal, it almost seems to allude towards that creature that is now extinct. And then some others have said it was a type of oxen. And there's been other theories that have come up. But I personally lean towards that big brute, single-horned rhinoceros that is extinct now. But anyway, the, the focus is strength. And what is the, the strength is there because they're protected by God. God protects them. Then in verse 23, we see the strength is also there not only because they're protected by God, but also because of the power of God that keeps them. Look at verse 23. It says, Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. According to this time, it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, What hath God wrought? Verse 23 is basically saying that surely or truly no witchcraft has been used in order to bring about these divine miracles in the nation of Israel. When they were delivered out of Egypt, there was no witchcraft going on there. The, the, uh, the wizards that were there by the right hand of the Pharaoh could not perform what God had performed. As time went on, there was no divination or witchcraft or enchantment that had secured these people. There was nothing of, of the demons that had protected or secured these people. Here's what it says. Look at the end of verse 23. Here's the great power. It says, what hath God wrought? What hath God wrought? It's basically saying this. He's, he's pointing out that God has been the one to accomplish this work. Oh, look at what God alone has done. God has protected his people. God's power has kept his people. And even today, for those people to still be there in that little bitty land, there on the other side of the globe with all those enemies surrounding them. You know who's keeping them there? God's keeping them there. His protection allowed them to come out of that land, allowed them to come back into that land. And even now, despite the wars that are going on there and the Muslims who are training, and I shouldn't say all Muslims, but at least in Hamas, they are actually brainwashing and training their children to hate Jews and see that every Jew that dies is a good thing, despite all that's going on there and all that turmoil, God's protecting his people. You remember the story I shared with you from last week about the man who that prior Tuesday named Hassan Bitmas at the age of 40, uh, 54 stood there at that pulpit and declared that Allah would have vengeance on Israel and then immediately fell over? from a massive heart attack, two days later died. Hey, God's still got power going on. God's still able. God's still active. And God's going to take care of his people. So the power of God keeps them. And the power of God rests, it rests solely in God. And these people gained it because they were willing to follow God's commands. And now as we conclude our message tonight, we move into verses 24 uh, to 30. It says, Behold, the people shall rise up as a great lion 
and lift up himself as a young lion. He shall not lie down until he eat of the prey and drink the blood of the slain. Basically, in that verse, God is warning Balak, who is the king of the Moabites, who wants to destroy Israel, that these people are going to destroy you. And these people are going to have the victory. When it's all said and done, they will have the victory. And we see other passages that say, Blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. And that's why the the United States of America must continue to support the nation of Israel because God has been faithful to bless those who bless his people. And tonight's message, I never gave you the title, but it's this, God will bless his people. God will bless his people. And to conclude the chapter here, you can go and read it for yourself, but we're kind of out of time tonight. Balak pleads with Balaam not to bless Israel, but Balaam has no ability to do so. God has blessed these people, and we cannot change that. God blesses Christians as well tonight. And nobody can change that. Balak continued his religious efforts to appease God and change his will, but it was impossible because God is not a man that can be manipulated nor swayed. And so all we must learn to do tonight, all of us, we should learn to accept God's will and live in it. And that is the best thing for any of us to do is learn to be submitted to God's will above all things. In the book of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives a list of these things called the Beatitudes. And he was really given some instruction about the children of the kingdom. Because, you know, Jesus came and he said the kingdom of God is at hand. And when he begins the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are the poor. He says, Blessed are the mourn, those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And you know what he was doing? He was helping us to understand that God must be the preeminent one in our lives and that God's will, the Father's will, supersedes our own in every situation. Blessed are the poor, those who find no good in this world. Their good is found in God. Blessed are the mourners, those who repent of their own sin and want to turn from it. Blessed are the meek, those who are submitted to the will of God. Blessed are those who thirst and hunger after righteousness. You desire God in your life. And the list goes on and on there through those Beatitudes, but it tells us tonight that God will honor those who honor Him.